What makes a great movie? It's got to involve you from the very beginning, keeping you on the edge of your seat, making you laugh, cry, or even scream in horror. Sometimes it's a four-hour arthouse epic from the Philippines. Sometimes it's Dwayne Johnson blowing stuff up for 90 minutes. Every fortnight, the Cambridge Film Show will tell you what's great and what's not so great in our city cinemas. The Cambridge Film Show, a Saturday at midday on Cambridge 105 Radio. Bookmark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio. With Heifer's Bookshop, the great Cambridge bookseller since 1876. Hello and welcome to Bookmark. This is the show that talks about books and writing with a local slant. And we'll be travelling around the world in this week's show with novels and poetry set in or inspired by other countries. Our featured guest is Guinevere Glassford, talking about her latest novel, Privilege, set in 18th century France. Lizzie Barber talks about why the city of Florence is the perfect setting for her crime novel, Out of Her Depth. And poet Sarah Natsaganian explains how her dual heritage has influenced her debut collection, Lemonade, in the Armenian Quarter. Gwyn, we'll give you a proper introduction in just a moment. First of all, welcome to Bookmark. Hi, Lee. Thanks for having me. We're talking, as I say, about other countries and work inspired by those other countries. France, 18th century France, not just inspired this novel, but your previous two novels have also been set historically, but also in other countries. I'm really interested in um, how everything connects. I think that's a common theme across all three novels. And I think that kind of has required that kind of journeying out. But I'm also interested in the near and the far, the local, the international, and those sorts of aspects in my work as well. And actually, I mean, I didn't intend to set all three books or to have a kind of uh, have France in common in all three books, but that has been the case. So they all certainly feature France in some way or another. You know, the first novel's a story of of the 17th century, a story of Descartes. The second novel moves right across the kind of the northern hemisphere, but also features the story of Mary Shelley and her journey across France in 1816, the year without summer. And yes, this latest novel, Privilege, uh, moves between France and England in the mid-18th century. And it was written during lockdowns. It must be quite nice, actually, while you were at home to be in your head in a different country. Yes, indeed. And um, yeah, I wrote I wrote the book in in 2020. And really, I was kind of I, I think that I think the book saved me in many ways. Obviously, it was an incredibly difficult year for for a lot of us. And I think, you know, it gave me an opportunity to imagine myself somewhere else. And to look beyond the day that I was in, that was the crucial thing. I think that's the thing I really struggled with most of all, was that sense in which I was kind of confined, not just literally to the house, but, you know, everything kind of was closed off. I couldn't plan for anything, couldn't make any journeys, couldn't see ahead. So what the book did was was a way of beginning to not just imagine myself somewhere else, but to, to think about the book as something as being in the future. It was kind of like planting a flag in the future so yeah that was that was that was really important and when you're setting a book in a different country and a different time obviously it brings with it specific challenges in terms of the responsibility on you if you like to get the culture right get the language right things like that I start with the character I mean obviously I have a I have questions I want to answer as well so there's kind of like that kind of a twin approach to the start of 
you know, any major piece of work like a novel, so often I'll have a question in my mind. But also it's very much character-driven, and it's not until I really feel myself with the characters that they kind of almost step up beside me that I feel that I can begin writing. Quite a lot of intense reading to begin with and not ever being quite sure what is going to be relevant or needed. And then somehow, somehow out of all of that kind of chaos of reading, somehow these characters begin to to really take shape. And I also need to have their names as well. So I can't write until I have their names. And often I can't write until I have the title of the book either, which I think is a little odd, but that's just the way I am. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll talk about all those lovely characters of yours in just a moment, but we'll hear your first choice of music shortly. Is music important to you? Yes, it is. I I can't actually write with any music on at all. I just need quiet. But, you know, when I'm sort of done for the day, we put the music on. Music's a big part of our family life. My my husband's a musician. My daughter's studied music. The songs that I've, I've chosen all sort of touch on the pandemic in some way or another. So this first track is Corrine Polwart on Robert McFarlane's Spell Songs which was released in 2019, just before the pandemic hit. And it's a beautiful piece of music. And in many ways, I found myself just listening to it over and over and over again. It's such a gentle song. Yeah, and it really helped. One, two, one. Would you hew me to the heartwood cutter? And that was Heartwood by Corrine Polwart, the first choice of music on Bookmark today from our featured guest, Guinevere Glassford. Gwyn's first novel, The Words in My Hand, was shortlisted for the 2016 Costa First Novel Award, the Authors Club Best First Novel Award, and longlisted in France for the Prix de Roman FNAC. Her second novel, The Year Without Summer, was longlisted for the 2021 Walter Scott Historical Fiction Prize and shortlisted for the Historical Writers Association Gold Crown Award, 2020. Privilege, her third novel, came out this month. It's just out, so reviews are literally coming in as we speak, but already the FT has said of it, among historical novelists, Glassford rides high. Her distinctive skill lies in allowing the famous, well-documented names and events of a period to form a detailed and dramatic backdrop to the plausible personality she creates. Well, I enjoyed it too, as well, for what it's worth. I enjoyed it very much. Say, it's just out. So what's it about for people who haven't had the chance to read it? It's a story of book publishing and censorship in mid-18th century France. I mean, the story also moves to England, but it's mostly set in France. And it's the story of, of two people whose lives cross over in quite an unexpected way. And it's a picaresque novel, so quite unlike my previous two books. Basically, that's the, the gist of it, and it involves this kind of this mad caper chase across France. To find out a mysterious writer whose initial mm-hmm. is D. And picaresque, that's a sort of uh, series of journeys and adventures, isn't it? Or a series of ve- adventures within a journey. Why did you choose that form of novel? As you say, quite different to what you've written before. It really suited the story, the sense of this mad journey. One of the things I was exploring was this, this sense of how people can be driven individually but also need ultimately to be able to work together to be able to to resolve this this mystery at the heart of the book and and the picaresque form just seemed to suit that and picaresque novels were popular at the time that this book is set i mean in fact publishing was undergoing something of a revolution at that time it was i mean the, the book touches on 
the story of the Encyclopédie, which is published in these years and includes the character Diderot, who was one of the editors of the Encyclopédie, but it doesn't actually really focus on that story. What I was interested in really was this the emergence of this other kind of book culture, which was kind of sort of coming to the surface at the time, very, very carefully, though, obviously, because there were these strict censorship laws in France at the time. So, yeah, so it is exploring these other types of literature which are beginning to emerge, including very cheaply produced kind of pamphlets, which had very cheap kind of like blue, very pale blue face covers, which is uh, was known as the Blue Library. And it actually is the beginnings of the Hachette company will what goes on to become Hachette. And the tropes of the picaresque, you pick up on all of those in the novel and in fact some of the style of writing as well. I'm always very attentive to, to voice, so which is a key part obviously of, of characterization. So I paid very, very close attention to that. I'm not, you know, trying to parody it at all, but I do want you to have a sense of stepping back into the eighteenth century. And this was a time, as you say, when publishing was changing up and books were a threat, were seen as a threat. I mean, the, the book is almost like a weapon. Yes, and there were very strict laws which were enacted to to prevent what was seen as difficult literature from being published. So in the Ancien Régime, this was enforced by the chief censor, but also a network of spies as well. And, you know, to fall foul of that law carried significant threats Diderot was imprisoned. Other leading figures of the Enlightenment fled the country or, you know, would return for a little while and then, you know, would have to take themselves and hide in the country, for example. Voltaire was outside of the of the boundaries of France for, for many years. The novel touches on this, the real risk to individuals from just owning these books as well. I don't want to give too much away, but there is quite, you know, a brutal scene within the book which uh, reveals that part of it. And why was this an issue that you wanted to explore? I mean, you say in the afterword that you feel it has links to today as well. Yes, well, the book was written in, in 2020 when Trump was still in power. But it's not just a response to that. It was a response very much to the threat of rising populism and what that means to our literary culture and to freedom of expression as well. So for me, you know, the book is very much a kind of um, an appeal for us to find common cause. That's what the characters have to do in the face of these far, far larger threats. So, you know, figures like Putin, for example, but also other figures on the far right. Because this period of time as well, that you're writing about the mid-18th century France was a period of particular political turmoil in the country. Yes, it was. And obviously, we're in the decades leading up to the French Revolution. But there was a great deal of unrest before that as well. But dissenting voices weren't tolerated. I mean, it's it's interesting, like a, a figure such as Diderot tread a very, very careful path. And Diderot there, there are several characters in the book whose names start with D to give us a sense of mysteries to which of them might be um, an author. Uh, Your central character, Delphine, fictional but based on a couple of real women. So Delphine is is very loosely based on a French mathematician, Marie-Sophie Germain. And as a child, uh, she wasn't allowed to go to school. Uh, She had this passionate interest in mathematics. But what she did do was she submitted her work in place of a friend. So she didn't actually go to the school and pretend to be her friend. But she uh, submitted work on the ruse that she was this young boy. I kind of picked up on that. And then in Robert Darnton's work, he's um, a librarian in America, now retired, 
his academic work has really focused in on the issue of, of censorship and publishing at this time. He also, in one of his books, reveals the story of, of a maid, uh, Mademoiselle Bonafont, who was writing kind of picaresque adventures and then was hauled in by the police and they simply couldn't believe that a, a young woman of her status could have written anything like this. And she's rather, you know, um, indignant at this and saying, yes, 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 I wrote it by my own hand. Fascinating stories. Well, thank you, Gwen. Well, we'll uh, we're speaking of women's voices. Let's hear now from our second guest, Lizzie Barber. Lizzie's debut novel, My Name is Anna, was the winner of the Daily Mail first novel competition and described by The Spectator as an absorbing and promising debut. Her second novel, Out of Her Depth, a psychological thriller set in Florence, came out last month and became a Richard and Judy book club pick of 2022. When she's not writing, Lizzie is the head of brand and marketing for a restaurant group and I met her at one of the restaurants in that group, Hush Mayfair, to chat. I started by asking her to tell me what Out of Her Depth is about. So Out of Her Depth is a story of Rachel, who's a sort of unassuming young woman from London who gets this incredible opportunity to go to Italy and work in this sort of luxury pension. It's basically a kind of five-star hotel run by this crazy Italian lady called Sylvia. And there she meets this very glamorous, sophisticated girl called Diana and a boy called Sebastian who lives in the villa down the road. And she falls into this incredibly glamorous expat lifestyle that she could never have imagined knowing about. And she's having the time of her life until something goes wrong. And it's set in past and present tense. And we know that in uh, present day, Sebastian, the heartthrob, has uh, just been released from jail for 20 years. And so it's about a young girl, it's the sort of rite of passage a little bit, a young girl who's got a place at Cambridge, then goes to study in Italy for a year. That was your life scenario, really, wasn't it? Yeah, um, although it was sort of in reverse, actually, because I started off started off in Italy and then ended up in Cambridge. So, yeah, so um, I spent three months in the year between school and starting Cambridge in Florence, studying Italian, and a bit like Rachel, kind of had my eyes open to this amazing freedom that you get from being released for the first time in that kind of period between childhood and adulthood where you feel like a totally independent being for the first time. It was the first time I'd ever lived abroad, the first time I'd ever lived alone and nothing quite as dark as what happened to Rachel (laughs) happened to me but um, I did have a very wonderful, unique experience living in in Florence and being let loose on the city after our Italian lessons were over for the morning. And now you set this psychological thriller, this this crime uh, novel there. There is something about crime in a beautiful place. Yes, and specifically, funnily enough, in Florence, there was actually a Florentine serial killer in the 80s, the monster of Florence. Parts of Hannibal are set there. So I think that there is... The thing about Florence is that it is, as you say, it's both kind of beautiful and dark. So you get these kind of incredible Renaissance buildings and then these tiny, dark, meandering corridors and passageways where the light kind of completely comes out and you sort of feel the cold air. And I think that's why I was really drawn to it as a setting for a thriller. There's also shades of Amanda Knox's parallels as well. She was in Perugia, which is close by, not in Florence. Um, So again, I think that there's that kind of sullying of beauty that I found really interesting. And we're interviewing now at this beautiful restaurant, Hush Mayfair. And actually, hospitality industry as such does feature in the novel. Yeah, I think... um, 
I, I mean, I've worked in the hospitality industry now for 11 years. I started working with my brother um, after a few years working in the film industry and uh, helps with my husband as a food writer. And so both of us share a kind of great passion for the industry and for food. And so it's found this way to kind of worm its way into my novels without really thinking about it. And, and obviously I have the Italian cuisine to play upon. So somehow food has kind of led itself into my book without me really thinking about it. But I guess working here day to day, it helps to have that as a backdrop. And as you say, it's set in the past and the present. How did you write that? Did you write all the past all at once and all the present all at once, or did you write it kind of chronologically as it appears in the book? No, I, I, I have a kind of mindset now where I've, I have to write things linearly, even though actually my third book is the first book I've written that has a kind of beginning-to-end plot written in the same tense in the same place. But I think I have to keep picking up the narrative as it follows. I can't kind of jump in and out. So... I found that it helped me to kind of pick up on what had gone before, even whether it was past and present, to kind of keep the narrative flowing on, um, so that even though it's written past and present, the past feeds into the present, and so you kind of get this flowing narrative that picks up upon each chapter. And is this your genre now? Because your first novel was in a similar genre, wasn't it? A crime genre. Is this where you're writing now? I mean, this sounds really idiotic, but I think before I published My Name is Anna, I didn't really even think about genre or publishing within a genre. So prior to that, I had written something that was much more literary fiction uh, that was sort of maybe a third of the way through and then got kind of frustrated with it, which is when I got the idea for My Name is Anna. But I think it was only really when that got a publishing deal that I actually thought or kind of understood that that was then my the way that I was going to be not branded, but the way that I would be taking my career forward. Um, not to say that I wouldn't work in other genres in the future, but I think at the moment I'm still learning so much about thriller writing. Um, every novel seems to be a kind of new opportunity to kind of grow and learn that I kind of want to see where this takes me. And certainly that seems to be the way that the industry works, is that I think that once you're in a genre, you like to continue in it. And it's a very popular genre, isn't it? It is. I think... Um, one of the things that I find frustrating about it as it's kind of exploded is this um, reliance on twists as being part of a psychological thriller. I think it's really interesting. Something like Gone Girl, which absolutely is one of my favourite books, but seems to have kind of spurred on this whole industry of shocking twists. And I think it's really interesting now that that seems to be such a factor in thrillers, whereas I think it'd be nice to see the genre go out of and away from that and, and see it expand in, into being, you know, even if you look at some, something like um, gothic novels, how they're, they're kind of a thriller genre in their own right, kind of back in the day or something like um, Daphne du Maurier's work are thrillers, but they are thrilling and tense and exciting, whereas thriller equaling twist, which I get quite frustrated about. And a lot of my books are more about the kind of build-up of tension rather than having a textbook shocking reveal at the end of it um, so I'd like to think that I'm kind of in the genre but not kind of paying heed to it all the time. And how do you plot? Do you have post-it notes on the wall or do you have carry it all in your uh, head? I, I, there's, a, there's a big kind of thing with writers about whether you're a plotter or a pantser and I'm absolutely a pantser <laughs> I, have, I always have a very very clear picture of the beginning scene of my book and I always know how it's going to end. How I get from A to Z is an absolute gamble I do carry a lot of it in my head. I don't plan. I, I tend to write a big synopsis that I send to my agent. And so I have a kind of shape of the book. But I just find I'm one of those people, and I think maybe it's because I spent a large part of my youth acting, but so it sounds a bit dramatic, but I like to see kind of what my characters are doing and where they're going. And sometimes they take you into totally unexpected places. And sometimes they don't take you anywhere. And then I, I've literally had chapters where I've sat there and gone, 
have no idea what I'm going to say. I have no <laughs> idea what this chapter's about. But I think that, for me, is part of the excitement, whereas I feel like being really kind of linear with it and kind of writing everything down on Excel spreadsheets or post-it notes wouldn't get the kind of same level, the kind of free sort of excitement for me. You make it enjoyable. It's got yeah. to be enjoyable for you to write, exactly. isn't it? Exactly, yeah. And speaking about the writing, obviously your job here keeps you pretty busy. How do you mix your writing with your professional work? So it's taken me... So I worked... When I wrote My Name is Anna, I worked full-time. And then My Name is Anna was published 10 days before my son was born. Right. So I think that that kind of gave a seismic shift to my working pattern and it's taken me probably until this year really to kind of lay down exactly how I was going to do that and the only way I've found to be able to do it is to have very clear boundaries so I work Monday to Wednesday in the restaurants and then end of Wednesday I put my out of office on and I solely concentrate Thursday and Friday to writing and then my son has to fit in around with that (laughs) as well the poor thing and my husband and my friends but I have to be really clear on it and similarly I have a lot of things bubbling over in my head to do with the books on a Monday to Wednesday and I have to kind of set them aside Um, but I have to have those clear distinctions I can't kind of let things blur otherwise it just will become a nightmare and what's next for you? so I have just handed in my uh, structural edit for book three which is called A Girl Like That and that's going to be out in 2023 also published by Pan Um, and that has shades of Rebecca it's set in Cornwall it's about a, a young woman escaping a a terrible relationship who moves to Cornwall and becomes embroiled with this kind of very strange uh, relationship between her employers. Um, So I finished that and uh, then it's on to book four which I'm giving myself a break until May. So I've got a week (laughs) and then it's back to work on, on book four. And Out of Her Depth by Lizzie Barber is published by Pan. Lizzie talking about plotting there, Gwyn. What about yourself? How do you plot? I think I take quite a light approach to it. I certainly have some similarities there because I kind of carry the the book in my head. But I, I know where the novel begins. I know the direction I'm heading in. Uh, sometimes that can change, um, but generally I do know that. And actually, you know, you know, Privilege is my third novel. I'm far more disciplined as a writer now. You know, I'm working to deadlines. I can't afford for a book to go wrong or to become derailed. I mean, sometimes every book has its own difficulty. There's no doubt about that. But, you know, I need to have a very clear idea of of what the book's about, even if I don't know exactly what every chapter is going to contain. And you mentioned Diderot earlier on, one of the characters whose name begins with D. Uh, So tell us a little bit about him. Uh, I mean, he's quite a seminal figure in um, French writing. Tell us about him and how it felt to fictionalise him. He's a, he's a minor character in the novel, but he was one of the, the editors of the Encyclopédie. And really the, the driving force behind it, it's his life's work. He was a novelist as well. He wrote many things, you know, some things which got him into a lot of trouble um, and hence, you know, a period of being imprisoned, which was very difficult for him. And I think overshadowed uh, his life for some time you know and we ha- I think we have this idea of, of him as an incredibly successful man but my research reveals somebody who lived in I think quite a shabby attic <laughs> well not necessarily shabby but certainly a, a, an attic <laughs> and who was I think exhausted by the work in the end of it but the book doesn't really focus in on him but it, I couldn't have written the book without him in it if you see what I mean. Um, so even though he's, he plays quite a small role in the novel, in fact, actually, it's quite an important role. 
Yes, because that encyclopedia is massively influential, which is a book that you have seen because you studied 18th century history. Yes, that's right. I mean, I, I'm, I'm a history graduate uh, some time ago now, but I, I can still remember that actually going into the rare books room at Lancaster University where I, I studied my degree and, you know, in this dim light in an environmentally very carefully controlled environment, a temperature controlled environment rather, there it was, a volume of the encyclopedia laid out on a cushion. We weren't allowed to touch it, we weren't allowed to obviously turn the pages or anything like that we just had to look at it kind of with a a degree of awe (laughs) (laughs) I know you're a keen potter and there's something about pottery in this book as well and actually it was quite an important time for ceramics, wasn't it, this uh, this period in mid-18th century France? Yes, I mean, Louis the Fifteen invests a lot of money in the development of porcelain manufacture at Vincennes, and also there's a lot of investment in glazes, and so we see suddenly at this time this kind of flourishing of this art form only available to the super wealthy. So it wasn't the the sorts of pots that people were using day to day, but really exquisite objects because porcelain had been imported from China and they were desperate to understand, you know, the formula for porcelain. And it's the same thing is happening in England as well. There's this kind of this race to understand how to make these beautiful porcelain plates and bowls and, and, and so on and so forth, this really fine white pottery and then these exquisite glazes, the like of which you've never seen before, and gold luster that's beginning to be placed on, on these objects as well. So, yeah really quite a remarkable time, I think, for that. And you do uh, contrast subtly but effectively the kind of, as you say, gold luster, the wealth of somewhere like Versailles with the absolute poverty of the majority of people who were living in attics, really scratching a living. Yes, that's right. And, and, and you know, and the day-to-day pottery, the, the, the book starts in Rouen, which is known for, you know earthenware pottery, very, you know, very humble pottery. So that story's sort of woven into the book as well uh, as a contrast. But one of the things I think, you know, which I hadn't expected was this story of, of how the Ancien Regime was failing at that time. So uh, they had this remarkable machine built on the Seine to raise water from the Seine and transport it miles across the countryside to Versailles and to the other palaces around. And... Um, and and yet, you know, the, there simply wasn't enough water. A lot of these these grand plans just didn't work. There were gardens falling into ruin, even at that time. And I thought that was quite revealing, actually. It struck me that you had to do a lot of research on this. So there's pottery, fountains, as you remember, there's a lot about fountains and, and about the printing process as well. Mm. Where do you go to find out all these things in mid-18th century France? There's an awful lot of reading. But in fact, actually, you know, Cambridge University Library is just such a brilliant um, resource. And I was lucky to actually get some research in before lockdown hit. And so actually the book started out in the historical printing room, which is down in the basement of, of Cambridge University Library. And I, and I want to, to thank the library and I want to thank the librarians there and Colin Clarkson in particular, who is the head of the historical printing room, who, for being so generous with his time uh, and for sharing his expertise, enabling me to kind of find my feet with a, a topic which I, at the start of it, knew nothing about at all. Well, let's hear your second choice of music. Now, this is an extraordinary track. La Coba by La Chica. Why this one? This was released in in 2020 and it's a visceral song. It deals with the sudden death of her of her brother. And I think for me, it just captures that kind of the despair that I think a lot of us felt and the fear that we felt at the absolute height of the pandemic. Soy la que manda, soy la que sabe 
Anciana leyenda, alma salvaje, yo soy la que sana. Me conoces, ¿no? Cambridge 105 Radio. Kickstart your weekend. Saturday Breakfast with Matt Webb. I'm here every weekend to get you moving. I have the latest from the Cambridge News Desk on the hour and half hour. Problems on the A14, Newmarket Road or Mill Road? Well, if there are, you'll be the first to know in the travel. There's a full sports roundup at 8.30, including what's happening at Cambridge United and our other local clubs. Plus a look at the Saturday papers and local online publications at 10 to 9. That's Saturday Breakfast with me, Matt Webb, this weekend from 8. If you're like me, you've got a family and a business, and you want to protect what's most important when the chips are down. With Woodfine Solicitors, that's exactly what happens. I got a bespoke legal service from a friendly expert team. They really listened to what was going on and tailored their recommendations to my situation, which was, well, that's another story. Anyway, the best thing was that it all happened online. A few simple clicks and I had my quote. That freed up time to focus on everything else. Get the help you need when you need it most. Visit woodfinds.co.uk or call Cambridge 411421. Woodfinds, cutting through the red tape. What does your home need to feel complete? Gap Home Improvements have been helping customers give their properties that curb appeal for over 20 years. You've seen our vans in your area providing dedicated support to families across Cambridgeshire. Windows, doors, garden rooms, conservatories and warm roofs. We offer free quotations in a pressure-free environment. In person, on the phone or by video call, our consultants will help you realise your property's true potential. Call Cambridge 914-567 or visit gaphomeimprovements.co.uk today. Bookmark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio. With Heifer's Bookshop, the great Cambridge bookseller since 1876. Our And we're talking on Bookmark today to Guinevere Glassford about her novel, Privilege. Gwyn, we've been talking there about Diderot. There's also an English writer who plays a part. He's not a character, but he plays a part in the novel, John Milton. Why was he such an important figure around this time? John Milton's works were were translated and were, were sold through these kind of networks of booksellers. And, you know, his ideas were, were radical. So one book, which is is mentioned, you know, deals with, you know, the why it's right to execute a king. So you can see why, you know, that wasn't particularly welcomed in a, in a French library at this time. It's, it's interesting because he's not perceived now particularly as a, as a radical writer, but then clearly what he's saying was quite incendiary. Yes, yeah, no, absolutely. When you're stepping back in time in, into these worlds, how easy is it for you to do that, to immerse yourself in mid-18th century France, what it must have felt like to be there amongst sometimes the squalor, sometimes the countryside, your your novel moves around in geography. I think that's just one of the real joys of writing is that kind of imaginary space. <laughs> and you can't really know that until you're, you're there thinking about it. And it really is one of the truly kind of um, sort of magical things about writing, how this, how it sort of lifts from this moment and in the moment and reveals itself to you. I mean, it's obviously based on research. There's no doubt about that. And so, you know, my books are, you know, really informed by quite serious research. Um, you know, I take the research side of it very, 
very seriously indeed. And you talked about the parallels between now and then in terms of publishing. Is there anything we can learn, do you think, from the way that story went all those years ago to what might happen now? It's an issue about not being complacent. You know, we take our literary culture very much for granted, and we shouldn't. We absolutely shouldn't. And we've seen the threat to that, I think, uh, you know, in, in America in particular, but, you know, in, in other countries. You know, I admit my, my work is political. Um, you know, I decry a kind of a certain amount of complacency, which I see, you know, because I think, you know, touching on the, the topic of of privilege, it's just the worst kind of privilege to sort of to sit at the edges and say nothing, to have your work really mean nothing, um, to avoid the difficult questions or to look the other way. You know, my, my work is trying to engage with the world. And it's also trying to engage with the past as well, you know, and to think about the past, to look at it from different directions, to sometimes question the history that we've been taught, those kinds of things. So, you know, I see fiction as having this kind of critical function, a questioning function. And it's fine to tell a story. Of course, it's fine to tell a story. But I I want my work to do something more than that. And there does seem to be some sort of reflections on, on Brexit in here as well. There's a, a several times you have a French character speak to an English character and say, you know, you, you assume you're better than us, you assume you know it all. I couldn't help but think of Brexit. It's kind of gentle. <laughs> <laughs> but there's that sense of this English hubris, which I think is, is always ripe for a takedown. Excellent. Well, let's hear now from, we'll change gear slightly, and hear from a poet now. We'll hear from Sarah Natsaganian. Sarah's poems have been published in the Rialto, Poetry Wales, Atrium, Fenland Read and numerous anthologies. In 2020, she was a winner in the Poetry Society Winter Members Competition and in 2021, she won first prize in the Spelt Poetry Competition. Her debut collection, Lemonade in the Armenian Quarter, was published last month and has already won the Saboteur Awards Best Poetry Pamphlet. When I spoke to Sarah, I started asking her just to tell me a little more about the title, Lemonade in the Armenian Quarter. Well, it's the title of a poem that's in the book. And as a title for a book, it was a quite a late arrival, actually, because the original version of this pamphlet was actually a philosophy revision completely different feel and when I was putting the final version of the book together a poet friend of mine said Sarah your Armenian poems for me are your core identity as a writer and as a person they express who you are he was the one who suggested Lemonade in the Armenian Quarter as the title of the book and I think it's also very effective it's inviting I hope it's appetizing the lemonade is introduces this major theme in the book which is food (laughs) which is a huge thing for me yeah, I just think it's full of life and joy. And as a core poem, it's a very important poem in the book. As well. And when your friend said that to you about your Armenian poems being like the core of who you are, was that something that resonated with you? Did you know that already? Oh, very. It definitely resonated. But it was extremely interesting to hear because I think until that point, almost certainly the majority of my poems have been perhaps from that other side of myself, the English side. And one of the most amazing things about putting this book together, particularly again in the later stages, was that my editor was encouraging me to colour up and liven up some of the poems. And I couldn't do it. And I thought very hard about this. I realised that actually half the time I'm writing for my Armenian identity, my Armenian self, and half the time I really am writing for my English quieter self. And I thought, well, just as I have to honour, I love to honour my English side and my Armenian side, my English mother, my Armenian father, I must honour and respect 
my poetry from where it's coming from and from the identity it has. But then when he did say, no, I think the Armenian poems are the core of you, I thought, well, actually, I would argue, as you, we all grow through life and we all explore different parts of ourselves and poetry is an incredible way of just actually seeing who you are and what you care about and what you're thinking about. But sometimes you can't even see it because it's so close to you. And so to have the objectivity of a friend and a poet saying that to you was incredibly helpful. And what different things does each of these halves of you throw up in terms of images, structure, in terms of how it relates to Gosh, your Gosh, that's interesting. One of the very quiet poems in this book is actually a very private poem that I'm not choosing to read at any of the readings. I won't read today. It's about my teenage self when I was in love with a teacher and it was all very difficult and very complicated. Nothing very much was said. And so that poetry tends to come out, not like a riddle, but it's much more subtle. It's probably focused through imagery and landscape and feeling as opposed to the Armenian poems, which I think are more strident. Apparently, when I spent four months in Jerusalem when I was 17, I came back sunburned shouting and stinking of garlic my mum said my mum who loves me and loved me every every which way she was shocked (laughs) because I think you know if I'd never been to Jerusalem at that formative age I would have come out a different person I wouldn't have discovered this noisy expressive side that channels herself through a language I think is probably more colourful and has a bit more velocity to it you're going to read some poems now yes so I mean you won't be surprised to hear that I'd like to read the title poem I'd love to give you a tiny bit of context. The Armenian quarter is in Jerusalem, in the old city of Jerusalem. There have been Armenians there, well, gosh, since the 5th century. My family arrived there several centuries ago. My uncle lives, or used to live, in an ancient house in the Armenian quarter, which has a metre-thick walls, domed ceilings. You know, it's an extraordinary place. And it's behind doors, so it's in a courtyard off the main busy street. So it's very, very secluded. And I just wanted to be able to express that as the context of this poem. Lemonade in the Armenian Quarter Uncle Hagop planted lemon trees outside his house, where small, passionate tortoises collide each spring with the hollow pock of a distant tennis match. At night, his ripest lemons dropped into a crackle of leaves. He grunted through the cardamom coffee kitchen into the courtyard, to fill his hands with fruit. Auntie soothed the juice with syrup and iced water. Uncle drank, clacked his tongue and sang, My heart will go on, his head thrown back like a songbird. The lemons lay thick last February. My sister filled a bag for Uncle. She put a smooth yellow oval into his hand and helped him lift it to his face to smell the zest. Dad asked the nurse for sugar and a knife. He cut, squeezed, stirred. See, Hagop, I'm making lemonade from your trees. Watched his brother smile, sip, sleep. So that was my uncle Hagop, my father's older brother, who was just the biggest character and lives on, my father says, in these poems. And I often find my father with this book by his chair, reading the poems and weeping a little, but it's usually happy tears. And now for a very different poem from the other side. It's a poem about Ely, Ely in lockdown, a particular place in Ely, which I recommend everyone go to visit one day, which is Grain Culture Bakery on St Mary's Street. 
Grain Culture Bakery, March 2020. We obey the pavement's pink chalk stripes two metres apart. We check our phones to pass the time or pitch a few words underarm like soft tennis balls to the next in line. It's easy talking to strangers these strange days. Something has loosened our tongues. Not just our shared desire for cardamom, twists and seeded sourdough. Greedy for more than bagels and bostock, we wait outside, grateful to stand in sanctioned sunlight and breathe the air. I groan at the scent of fresh bread from the open door. Behind me, a man says, What can you smell? Croissant, brioche, hot cross buns, I say. But that's not all. What I smell is sweet as a baby's head after sleep. Soft as its feet. It's fresh as the blackbird's steady serenade this Saturday morning on St Mary's Street. I smell the small warm realities we can tuck under one arm and take contented home. Thank you, that was lovely. And I was very struck by what you said about your dad having the poems by his side. Mm. How has your family felt? Because you've presumably mined a lot of personal experiences to bring those Absolutely. poems to the page. So thank you for asking. Yes, it's so interesting. A senior and very famous poet, she said, how do your parents feel? The same question. And I told her they love them, they love them. And I have shared each poem with them as it's written and they're great supporters of my work. I always ask them for, for feedback. I rarely get it. But the important thing, I think, is that if you're sharing something as personal as I often share about them, it's crucial to me that they actually feel comfortable with that. But when I told this famous friend, well, she said, you are so lucky. You know, and I actively feel very grateful for them. And that's why I've dedicated the book to them. My father, Abraham, and my mother, Madeline. And the two kinds of sides of yourself there that we saw in each mm. of those poems, they may be more flamboyant sides, the Armenian side, mm. the quieter, I think was the word you used. When you're writing about those sides, do they lend themselves to different structures? When I draft a poem, it's normally because it's sitting in my head, like banging to get out, and I have to write it down. So normally a draft, I actually try not to put it into a form at all, and I just scribble into a book. Leave it there, hopefully for a few weeks, ideally. And then if I open the book up again, and I think there's still a heart beating there, I'll take it out and I'll then draft it. In terms of form, it's weird. It's almost like getting an earworm or a formworm. Sometimes I feel I really need to have four-line stanzas and sometimes three-line stanzas, but I'm not particularly conscious about form. When I first started writing poetry, I, I wrote a few sonnets. I think they were successful metrically, and, and also I think I got some to work. But because I think I've got a musical background, I just got completely obsessive about iambic pentameter and I couldn't write anything unless it was in iambic pentameter. <laughs> Rhymes as well obsess me so I think I've actually had to try to let go of form. What's more important for me personally is concision and people say that they love reading the poems because they give such an intense and condensed impression and I don't want to waste anyone's time. We're all busy. That's why I think it's such a popular medium at the moment. You can just condense down an experience, a moment, a memory, an image, a flavour. If somebody picks that up and they can read that poem within about 15 seconds and they can have that, perhaps I'm just lazy, but I think I just, <laughs> I just like these little bite-sized, powerful, short poems. And the form, 
in terms of line breaks, it's really about which word needs some space at the end, which word you want to leave hanging and give some, some room around it. An actor friend was coaching me a little bit kindly to read the poems and he said, Sarah, you've broken the line there for a very good reason. Pause when you're reading this poem, you know, give this word space. And so in terms of form, I try to make it natural, not artificial. I try not to let form get in the way of content. And has writing about your past, your upbringing, made you feel differently about it? Yes, I think yes, because I think what happens in the very best work or some of the poems I'm happiest with are those where I've started writing something I know I want to write, but then the poem takes you further and takes you somewhere that you didn't know you were going to get. You know, I wrote these poems about my uncle. There are three in the book. They were all written quite shortly after he died. So it really was distilling him there for me. And so, yes, it's been comforting. It's been reassuring. And I think also inspiring because people keep telling me, I feel I know your uncle. I feel I know your uncle. And people who have met him said, you've got him, you've got him, you really got him. And so it reinforces and deepens my appreciation of what I'm writing about. And Lemonade in the Armenian Quarter by Sarah Natsaganian is published by Against the Grain Poetry Press. We've been talking on Bookmark today to Guinevere Glassford about her novel Privilege, published by Two Roads. Gwyn, there was a particular phrase that Sarah used that caught your ear. She talks about the small, warm realities that we can take home, which I just thought was, was, was lovely. That's kind of what I'm looking for in my work, those moments of those kind of those small, warm realities that we can take home. It's trying to, I think that's what fiction and poetry can do, is, is, is to make that connection. And it doesn't have to be big. It doesn't have to be profound. It is about those small, warm realities. Um, yeah, it's a very snuggly phrase, isn't it? It is. And I think maybe the pandemic's made me appreciate that more. And what's next for you then? Well, I'm kind of busy with um, with uh, with marking work at the moment. <laughs> so, um, but once I'm through that, I'm back to uh, working on book four, uh, which is a 14th century story, but also weaves in a, a modern strand as well in the aftermath of the Peasants' Revolt. So I'm in the relatively early stages of that. I've got about 15,000 words down, and I'm determined this time to write something shorter. Right. <laughs> Good luck. And uh, you may have already answered this question when I say, what are you reading at the moment? It sounds like you're reading assignments. I'm reading assignments. So I'm, I'm reading, I've got 14, yeah, 14 assignments. Uh, well, they're in pairs, actually. And these are all openings to novels. Um, so it's, it's wonderful, actually. It's really wonderful to see um, all these ideas, all the different ways that, uh, you know, people see the world in terms of, of a novel as well. So I'm, I'm enjoying, it's a lot of work, it's quite intense work, but I'm, I'm enjoying marking it very much. Thank you, Gwen. We'll come back to you in just a moment for your last choice of music. But a heads up that our next show, our featured guest is Egyptologist Toby Wilkinson, talking about his book Tutankhamun's Trumpet, the story of ancient Egypt in a hundred objects. We'll also hear from poet Christina Buckton on her first collection, Holding It Together. And Michelle Paver talks about Wolfbane, the last in a hugely successful Wolf Brother series for young adults. But we'll sign out now, Gwyn, with your last choice of music, which is Nature's Law by Sam Kelly and the Lost Boys. Why this one? I've only discovered uh, Sam's uh, music recently. So this was published, uh, sorry, published. <laughs> it was released in 2021. And it's described as a potent political song that very much challenges the status quo. And, you know, I think, yeah, good for him, actually. We need more more music that does this, you know, more writing that does this. But he also said that making music has been vital to his sanity 
over the past year. And it's just a reminder about how, you know, how, how devastating the pandemic's been, not only to, to writers, but also to musicians, uh, to actors and actresses, uh, people working in theatres. So, yeah, and, and I couldn't agree more with him. You know, writing privilege was also something which was key to my sanity moving through, you know, through 2020. You know, and I think, you know, music's for the future. I absolutely believe that books are for the future as well. It feels like one of the very few good things in the world right now. So books and music and, yeah, here's to that. <laughs> <laughs>